0: Good morning, SunWest Church. Uh, welcome back to Church at Home. Thanks again to our worship teams and our tech teams and everybody for leading us every single Sunday. Uh, that's been a huge blessing to us as a community as we gather online uh, each and every week. Uh, we got two more weeks of Mark left, and so this week and next Sunday. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to concluding this series, and it's been good and it's been timely. Uh, I'm wearing my Raptors t-shirt today. Uh, if you were around last year, you know that, uh, I made prob, uh, well, we, I think we counted. It was approximately about 23 Raptors references in the playoff run last year. And now that the sports are back happening and the Raptors are, uh, in the playoff picture and doing well, you can anticipate probably a few more Raptors references going forward, and I think uh, hopefully we'll make some fans out of you uh, that aren't yet on the bandwagon. Uh, before we jump into Mark on the second last week, I do want to mention our plans for regathering, our Phase 1 plan. I've mentioned it the last couple of weeks, and we've released some information this week on what that Phase 1 looks like, and we'll uh, cross the bridge of Phase 2 and 3 When we get there, Uh, but for fall, our plan starting in September 20th is to regather in some form here at our church. And we understand that not everybody is comfortable with regathering. We've done the Church Pulse survey a few times, and we know that our our community is all over the spectrum on uh, some people are just... You know, we should have been back two months ago, and other people uh, are going to be hesitant about coming back soon. And so we are going to gather with those who are ready. And so whenever you're ready, uh, we're going to be ready, and that's our plan on September 20th. And we're going to do one service at 10 a.m. Uh, pre-registration will be happening for those services. Uh, we will not be having our junior high and children's ministries running on Sunday mornings. We're going to have families sitting together. We're going to try and keep our services uh, short, as we've been doing uh, here with our church-at-home uh, services. Uh, we will be running senior high and junior high midweek programming, and so that's going to be starting again in fall uh, with all the uh, different social distancing and restrictions in mind as we do that. Uh, we are planning and hoping to run a to K-5 ministry on Monday nights, and we're going to do a kids' club uh, for for girls and boys, and there'll be different activities for each of them, and there'll be registration and avail- uh, uh, registration uh, for those kids, uh, or for those parents to sign up those kids, but we're not going to launch that until October 19th, because uh, we want to wait and see kind of what happens in our world as kids go back to school, and so we've, we've delayed the start of that a little bit as well. Uh, we have uh, been working at putting together some streaming uh, equipment, so our hope is on September 20th. Uh, our services here that we're going to be doing with those who are physically gathering will be streamed online, so those who aren't quite ready to jump in the physical gathering, you're not going to miss out. You can participate online in real time as those services are happening. Um, we are going to continue to emphasize small groups because our Sunday mornings will not be conducive to the needs that we have to connect as a community. Even though we will be re- regathering some of us in person, uh, there will be restrictions In place. And uh, and so the Sunday morning, uh, there won't be that mingling opportunity that maybe many of us do enjoy on a Sunday. Uh, And you're welcome to do that in the parking lot. Uh, But we really want to make sure that we have groups available again for those looking to connect in community. And that's going to be an emphasis. Uh, Mass will be required. Obviously, that's uh, um, part of the mandate right now in Alberta. And uh, with masks on, we will have uh, worship and singing uh, that will be happening uh, because people will be wearing masks. Uh, so no food, drinks, coffee, you'll have to bring your own. So that's a little bit of what it's going to look like on September 20th. We're going to uh, communicate all that. You can read that that documents and there'll be more communication as we move forward. Uh, but you can start planning for that and putting that in your calendar as we kick off in-person gatherings again on the 20th. Okay, so we're going to continue with Mark, uh, the sermon title this morning is The Reversal. We're looking at Mark 15, 16 to 31. And up until this point, uh, we need to talk about the pace of Mark. We've mentioned this a few times, but in the first half of Mark, uh, Mark uses the word immediately 45 times. It's only used 85 times in the entire New Testament, and Mark uses 45 of those 85 times. And there's about 42 of those 45 in the first half of the book of Mark. And so the pace of the First half of Mark is very, very quick. And we noticed that as we went through. It was one story into the next, into the next, into the next. And, and, and Mark is just telling things at a rapid pace. And around chapter 8, he switches. He goes from talking about immediately and the pace starts to change. And he uses uh, the phrase, on the way. Uh, and the on the way, as we've talked about, is discipleship language. Following Jesus on the way. And where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. And so the second half of Mark... Uh, uses that term on the way jesus going on the way he's inviting us on the way and then as we get to jerusalem when jesus finally arrives in jerusalem uh the the book slows down even more and we've we've talked about the four watches of the night uh and and the book starts talking about the the weeks leading up the days leading up and now into the the final uh event the climactic event at the crucifixion. Uh, We are talking about hours, and so Mark goes from this big picture immediately to journeying toward Jerusalem on the way, and once he gets to Jerusalem, it talks about the week, and then it talks about the watches of the night, and now it's talking about the hours, and so the whole book is slowing down. It's moving into slow motion. Mark is wanting us to slow down and pay attention at this climactic point in the story. Um, and if you're familiar with sports, you're, you're familiar with slow motion replays. Uh, and I, near the beginning of the Mark series, I think I made a Billy Madison reference and I couldn't quite get out of Mark without also making an Ace Ventura reference. And, and, uh, and when I was thinking of a slow motion replay, uh, this is immediately the scene that came to my mind. Uh, one of the classics of Jim Carrey. Let's take a look. Slow Jim Carrey and slow motion. Classic Jim Carrey. uh, Slow motion, and then not only does he do slow motion, but then he goes in reverse. And uh, so we're going to talk about how the book of Mark is slowing down here, and then I'm going to talk about the reversal, and I'll explain uh, what I mean by that a little bit later. So let's read the text together. We're going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to kind of come back and pick out some pieces in it. So in Mark 15, starting at verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, Uh, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, again and again. They struck him on the head with the staff and spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him, obviously mocking him. And And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, and put his own clothes on him, then they led him out to crucify him. And, and the word mocked here that is used is actually the same word as blasphemy. Uh, they blasphemed him, uh, which is a word that the Jews only used when they talked about God or speaking negatively about God. So even there, there's, there's a hint of Mark uh, showing us that this is not just a human, but this is actually God with flesh on. And they're not just insulting a human, they're insulting God. They're, they are mocking God. They're blaspheming God. Uh, a certain man from Cyrene Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull and so uh, we mentioned that Mark talks about moving on the way to Jerusalem on the way to the cross and and we know that Jesus called to the disciples was to pick up their cross and follow him and here we literally have uh, this man uh, Simon who becomes a literal example of a disciple who is picking up a cross and following behind Jesus on the way to the cross. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. And, and just a note that the Romans would, would intentionally crucify people on uh, busy roadways where they knew lots of traffic was coming and going. Uh, and so Jesus would have been seen by uh, thousands of people as he's hanging there uh, because Rome was trying to make a point. You do, not, uh, you do not come against Rome in any kind of way. And that is how they kept the peace of Rome, so to speak, Uh, In place. And so those who pass by, everybody passing by, hurling insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, So you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the first time that Jesus uses a term other than father to refer to God. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Because the first phrase that he said, Eloi, Eloi, sounds like the name Elijah. Uh, Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine, vinegar, and put it on a staff and offered to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So the whole scene of Mark is moving in slow motion and then here in verse 37 there's this pause at the crucifixion with a loud cry jesus breathed his last period the whole book of mark the last 15 chapters has been moving towards this moment now let me summarize and look at a couple of pieces here in mark 15 and you know, mark 15 24 uh, we see this reference to people dividing up his clothes, casting lots to see what each would, each would get. And so Jesus here is stripped naked. He's in front of a crowd as people are passing by. He's in front, of enemy, in front of his enemies. He's in front of the family and disciples who are now watching from a distance, we know, uh, following at a distance, not being close to him anymore. He's humiliated. He's alone. and, and uh, So people are casting lots. And I, ironically, this practice of casting lots is mentioned over 70 times in the Old Testament and seven times in the New Testament. And they were likely sticks of various lengths or flat stones like coins or some kind of dice. Uh, the exact nature isn't known, uh, but it's basically like flipping a coin. And God instructed several times in the Old Testament uh, for his, his leaders to cast lots to discern God's will in a specific situation. Ironically, we have a moment here or something that God did historically that was done to discern the will of God is now being done ironically in a way to punish God himself, to hurt God himself, to crucify God with flesh on. And so there's an irony that is happening here in the story. And then in verse 17, we see that he's surrounded by evil men, that there's, a, there's rebels, there's criminals, there's... I mean, murderers on his right and his left, there's insurrectionists. You know, he took the place of Barabbas like we talked about last week. And now Jesus is there surrounded by evil men. And here's a guy who was who spent three years of his life healing the sick and teaching and serving the poor and advocating for the voiceless and spending time mentoring these young men, pouring into them, feeding the 5,000 and the hungry, helping lame walk and uh, feed those who were hungry, restoring dignity of those who were on the outside looking in, the women, the Samaritans. Uh, This is what Jesus has done and now he finds himself in the greatest moment of his need when he's been helping all these people for the last three years. Where is his help when he needs it and he's all alone? And he's just surrounded by these two rebels, these two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. He's surrounded by evil. He's left abandoned without a friend, without anyone he had loved, without anyone that he had served, without anyone that he had healed, without anyone that he had taught, without anyone that he had encouraged. He's alone, poured out his life for three years, and now finds himself only surrounded by evil men. And then we see a number of references in verses 29 to 32 uh, that he was insulted, that he was mocked, and uh, like I said, that he was actually blasphemed. And and Mark wants us to feel the intensity of that shame, of that public humiliation, because that's what crucifixion was. It wasn't just physical pain. It was emotional pain. It was intended to humiliate and heap shame on the individual that was hanging there. And this is what Jesus experienced to a, a significant degree as he's hanging on the cross. And then in verse 31, there's this dialogue uh, and it says the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. This man who had helped so many people was unable to help himself. And this is perplexing. For everybody who anticipated Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus to be king, this was not the fate of the Messiah. The Messiah was to rule. The Messiah was to conquer Rome. The Messiah was to restore Israel to its glory. And Jesus... Uh, on all accounts, on the outside looking in, has failed as a Messiah. He was the one that the people were to put their hopes and their dreams into. He was supposed to save all of Israel and now he is helpless. And how is he supposed to help them when he can't even help himself? Let the Messiah, who is the King of Israel, come down from the cross that may that we may see and believe, they say. Uh, and they're mocking him because they know that he can't or they think he can't. But the truth is that Jesus could. That Jesus stayed on the cross because he chose to stay on the cross. No doubt they truly believed both parts of that statement. Jesus truly had saved people. He he had healed people, rescued people. Um, That's what the word saved means, sozo means. It means all of those things. And and that saving that he had been doing had made him famous. And now he hangs helpless, unable to help himself um, seemingly. And obviously... He cannot come down or else he would. He saved others, he cannot save himself. But this is the paradox of the gospel. That's not actually what's happening. No, he cannot save himself, not because he can't, but because he is following the will of the Father who told him to drink this cup, to be baptized with this baptism. He has chosen to submit to the will of the Father. And because of that submission and that posture, he can't come down off the cross. Ultimately, he can save others only because he does not save himself. That is the paradox of the gospel. If he would save himself by fleeing from God's plan and not being obedient to the Father, there would be no salvation for others. Jesus saves others exactly because he chooses not to save himself. And those who are looking at the cross mocking him don't have the eyes to see what is actually happening. And then we have this moment in verse 31. Where Jesus cries out, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani," which means, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And this phrase, um, you know, many scholars and theologians have just wrestled over this phrase because there's so much depth and there's so much going on in the story here. And so Jesus cries out, seemingly separated from his father, abandoned by his friends, his family, his followers, and now seemingly abandoned by God Himself. And here with a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last as he cries out this phrase, God, why have you forsaken me? Pause. Now, before we come back to that, how many of you remember these old station wagons? You know, you remember these where uh, this was the back seat and kids would actually sit in the back facing backwards. Something like this, you know we had a station wagon like this when I was growing up, and uh, me and my brothers we would sit in the back and we thought it was the best thing uh, best thing ever here's an advertisement that's so old and pixelated you probably can't probably can't read it, but it says up up to four hundred and sixty two miles between Phillips and up to Six feet between you and your kids, <laughs> so that that's a big selling point. You can put your kids all the way as far as, as far away as you can get them in this long station wagon vehicle, and these parents are just enjoying life on their vacation. Uh, you know, in our vehicle, I got my kids fighting like two feet behind uh, my head. So uh, this that's a, that would be a selling point for me but anyways it was a selling point for my parents me and my brothers we sat in the back seat uh, i often just loved sitting back there and as my parents were looking forward i was looking backwards and i was experiencing the world in a completely reverse way than my parents were everybody else was sitting at the front and i um unfortunately this car that i loved as a kid uh had a sudden death we were at on main street in the town i grew up with in in clarney manitoba and the hood started smoking and and i remember my dad saying get out of the car and we all get out of the car and you know within minutes the whole car was up in flames and it it died a very public uh death right in the middle of of main street but here (laughs) here in the story of mark uh We have been following the story. We've been moving forward in the story. And Mark is doing something that uh, is not obvious to us as we read. Uh, But Mark actually wants us to experience something in the story backwards. And so we're reading forwards, reading forwards, and those with eyes to see and ears to hear will recognize that there's something in reverse happening. There's a backwards uh, part happening that not only is Mark brought this whole story to a, sl- to a standstill, slow motion, into a pause. But at this pause, we ought to look back and say, what just happened? So this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, seemingly appears that God's abandoned him, uh, like I said. And 2,000 years ago, when the story happened, when these texts were being circulated, the Jews knew their Bibles very, very well uh this was their school material that when they went to school and they studied as students uh their content of all of their study was the scriptures so they knew the old testament they knew the psalms they knew the torah uh the first five books of the bible uh they knew it very very well in fact they didn't have uh, chapters and numbers and verses like we do now when we uh, when we open our bible we have all those numbers they didn't they didn't have that they would they would reference certain sections of the bible by referring to verses and phrases uh that people would have been well aware of So often, when they wanted to remind you of a passage of Scripture, they would cite the first line of that passage. Jesus is actually, in this moment, in what he is saying, reciting the first line of Psalm 22, verse 1, which begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I would suggest to you that Jesus isn't saying, that God has forsaken him as much as he's telling people to consider Psalm 22 and its significance in understanding the event that has just taken place. In fact, even though, uh, and and Mark doesn't quote the Old Testament very often, uh, but he embeds different themes and symbols as we've seen from the Old Testament in his story. And he quotes Psalm 22 here. Jesus quotes Psalm 22. uh, But there's allusions to Psalm 22 throughout the entire crucifixion narrative that we just read. Jesus is identifying with King David and telling us that he, that Jesus is the true king, the Messiah that people had been waiting for. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear what's happening, you will see it. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is where the crucifixion story ends, but this is where Psalm 22, verse 1 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was written a 1,000 years before the crucifixion. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, but I find no rest. So the people that knew the psalm would have immediately identified with uh, what was said in these verses. Jesus quoting Psalm 22. His experience is like the experience of David, who was in anguish, who was forsaken, who was abandoned. This is the place where Jesus is. But let's look at the rest of Mark fifteen. You know, we talked about in in verse thirty one, where uh, where the the people are mocking him, say he can't even save himself. Well, that's also an echo of Psalm twenty two. You keep reading through the Psalm twenty two, verse eight. He trusts in the Lord, they say, and this is said in a mocking way uh, to King David. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. David's being mocked. You claim that God will help you, but where is God? We don't see him. Look at the situation. God has obviously abandoned you. This is the mockery that is happening in Psalm 22 towards David. And this is the mockery that we see happening in Mark 15. And, and we've talked about that through the verses 29 to 32. Jesus is being mocked. He's being insulted. He's being blasphemed. But What about Psalm 22 verse 7? It says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They are shaking their heads. In Mark 15, if you remember, this is what it says. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Those crucified him with him also heaped insults on him. This is basically a direct quote within the story of Mark 15 of Psalm 22. What's going on here? Let's look again. Jesus, in verse 17, is surrounded by evil. He's, he, he's abandoned by his close friends. There's evil men on each side of him. He's, he's hanging in shame like a criminal for people to see, crucified on the busiest street. And we look at Psalm 22. Um, and there's a number, there's a whole section that you can look at that, that would describe this experience in the Psalm. Um, but specifically, it looks like a, verse 16 and 17. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Jesus is identifying fully with Psalm 22. And finally, in verse 24, we have this reference to the casting of lots and the dividing of clothes. Uh, And we also see this in Psalm 22, verse 17 and 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What is going on? Jesus identifying fully with Psalm 22. That it was a source of encouragement for him. Uh, in that moment when he was obeying the Father, why? He gave him a frame of reference for what the big picture was, is, what his commission was, what it was all about. And he identified fully with Psalm 22, I think, so we could actually experience the fulfillment of Psalm 22. So I said, I mentioned seemingly he was forsaken by God. Why did I say that? Well, if you actually keep reading in Psalm 22, this is what it says in verse 24. For he is not, speaking of God, for God does not despise or scorn the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. I think Jesus is remembering that God actually has not abandoned him, that there's a bigger purpose, that the story is moving forward, that where Psalm 22 was actually prophesying, it's being fulfilled in this moment in his suffering. And what is going on? Well, I think that Jesus is uh, in Mark 15 is experiencing Psalm 22 backwards so that we can experience psalm 22 forwards i think he's experiencing psalm 22 in reverse so that we can actually live out the fulfillment of psalm 22 which should make us pause and ask the question of well what is the fulfillment of psalm 22 where does the psalm lead where does it go where does it end what's the resolution because it starts with this verse 1 being forsaken by God, but it doesn't end there. The story ends somewhere else. And so what, what is Jesus and Mark trying to help us see and understand in this moment where it looks like God can't be seen anywhere? Mark wants us to see that God actually is up to something. And ironically, the Messiah is doing exactly what he came to do. So this is where Psalm 22 ends. From you comes the theme of my praise and the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him, which just means all future generations of people, posterity, will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, you and me, and those who come after us, that he, that God, has done it. Psalm 22 starts in despair, but Psalm 22 ends with this beautiful prophetic picture of what the Messiah was going to accomplish and what we have to look forward to. And I don't want to move quickly from this point. And in fact, uh, to close, I want to read this again. And I want this to sink in, that Jesus experienced Psalm 22 backwards, that he He actually went through the suffering, the humiliation, the pain. He identified fully with David in Psalm 22 because he identified fully with us in our sin and our humanity so that we could have the hope of Psalm 22, so that we could identify not just with the painful and shameful parts of Psalm 22, but with the hope, with the resurrection, with the global picture of what God is up to. Even when we look around ourselves and say, where's God in all of this? We can have eyes to see and ears to hear that God is up to something. And the end of the story is worth looking forward to. And we know that he is already victorious because of his death and resurrection on the cross. So let's read Psalm 20, the end of Psalm 22 again. And I pray that this would be a source of encouragement and hope for you, and I would invite you to reflect on it uh, during the week. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This is not just for a select group of people, but God's good news is for all people, for the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. That he is the King of kings and Lord of Lords. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, which is all of us. And this is a reminder of our of how finite we are as humans. And the invitation not just to dread death someday down the road, but to actually die to self today so that we could experience the life of Jesus today. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people not yet born that he has done it. He has done it. Jesus breathes his last. Jesus cries out Psalm 22 verse 1. Not because he's in, this, in despair, but because he's reminding himself in this painful moment what lies beyond the moment. That there is a hope. That there is, uh, God's kingdom is coming to earth as it is in heaven. And he's inviting you and I to actually experience the fullness of Psalm 22. Not just the first part, because he experienced the fullness of Psalm 22 on our behalf. So let me pray. Father we thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you that he entered to the depth of our sin, our pain, our shame, that he obeyed uh, your will, that he suffered this death on on the cross. Lord that he went to the the depths that King David and that uh, and that we as a as a people have experienced so that we can experience the life, the hope the way that you intended and created us to experience it, Lord, may we bend, bend our knee. May we declare Jesus as Lord, and may we live our lives uh, following Jesus, so that we too can experience the hope that we can experience that beautiful picture uh, that you gave prophetically, th- you know, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, um, in Psalm twenty-two. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never experienced this hope, uh, this is available to you at any point. Jesus' invitation is always to come, always to follow, always to bend your knee, receive Him as King, as Lord, as Savior. There is grace for you. There is power and courage that He wants to give you. There is forgiveness for you, and there is hope for today and for tomorrow because of what Jesus has done. Amen. So in light of Psalm 22, Mark 15, uh, let me leave you with a couple of going deeper uh, questions that I hope will help you and your small group, your family, you individually, just dive deeper into what the Lord is saying to you and where he's leading you uh, through the text. I would encourage you to read Psalm 22 repeatedly this week. Just let that soak in. Become familiar with it like the people in that time would have been familiar with it. How can you identify with the experience of King David? What is the hope you feel as you read it? And how did Jesus move that hope into reality? Because Mark 15 is not a story about despair. It is ultimately the story of When Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think he was experiencing? Have you ever felt forsaken by God? What is the truth that Mark 15 and Psalm 22 tell us about those experiences where we feel isolated, alone, and forsaken? And then finally, what is God's invitation to you in light of this? And how will you respond to it? What decision will you make? Because Jesus always invites us to a decision point and invites you to respond to his invitation to follow him. Blessings to you this week as you reflect on that. Um, And I pray that you would experience the joy that comes from the hope that we have in Jesus.